Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is, is our text this morning. We're going to read the first six verses in just a moment. As you're finding that, uh, let me mention that tomorrow morning early, I am um, f- going to Uganda, and I will be there for the next week and a half or so, meeting with our, our dear sister church there, King Jesus Church in Busega, Uganda, which is a suburb of Kampala, and you know Pastor Raphael and his wife Alan dear friends of ours, dear friends of the church, and I'll be doing what I've been doing last four or five years there, a a little pastor's conference for a group of pastors there. And so do pray for me as I go, and um, pray for them, because what Pastor Raphael and I talked about would be the theme this year, is to do uh, like a boot camp on the book of Romans. (laughs) And um, if you're visiting today, we we just got done with a year and a half, two years, really, through the book of Romans. I've been preaching verse by verse through it, and it's sort of hot on my mind, and so I said, well, Raphael, how about we, how about we go over Romans and its importance in pastoral ministry and the life of the church and the life of the Christian? So basically, we're taking two and a half years of messages here from Crosspoint Church, and we're going to distill them down into six sessions. So I don't know if I need you to pray for me or for them. But uh, do pray for that time, and that will help build up the body of Christ there in, in Uganda. Uh, Tyler will be preaching next week, and, and so uh, I'm looking forward to catching that on our podcast. So, as I mentioned last week, the balance of the summer, before we get into another book after the school year starts, we're doing just some individual texts and messages to help us think about how this beautiful gospel the centrality of this good news that God has reconciled sinners to himself through the work of his Son. We're looking at how, in some individual texts in the balance of the summer, how to really apply that gospel to our lives. And this morning, I want us to think about the topic of spiritual warfare and how all of us are in the middle of a battle, spiritual warfare, whether we realize it or not. There's a couple things I want to say about just this topic of spiritual warfare. The first thing I want us to say is that it is a normal part of the Christian life. Sometimes we think of spiritual battle, spiritual warfare as a particular subset, something that is only faced at particular intense times of the Christian life, and that is simply not the case as we read the Bible. The Bible is full of clear statements about how This is not a subset of the Christian life. This is not some strange, mystical, every now and again thing that certain Christians face or a particular leader's face. This is part of the Christian life. In fact, spiritual warfare, which all of us are engaged in, is part of sanctification. It's part of being a Christian. And the trap that oftentimes we fall into is either making too much out of it, as if there's a demon behind every rock that we, we, we need to be afraid of, it kind of psych ourselves out, 
or making too little of it, being ignorant of it, and sometimes being unaware of it, and therefore discouraged not knowing what is going on in our lives. And so I want us to think about, from this text, this idea of waging spiritual war. So let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-6. through 6. Now this is unusual for us just to parachute down into a passage like this in the middle of the book. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, as I mentioned, we like to primarily work our way through books of the Bible uh, and, and just go through it verse by verse. And so it's helpful for us to understand the context of where we are in Corinthians. Paul has written two letters that we know of to the Corinthian church, and this is obviously the second. That's why it's called 2 Corinthians. And up to this point, he has been encouraging the church for responding to his correction of them. One of the problems in the Corinthian church at that time, although there were many problems, which I actually find strangely encouraging, that Paul writes a letter to this church who had all sorts of problems with sin and carnality, but yet he's writing to them because this is, these are God's people and God is not finished with them yet. He writes this first letter to them, really rebuking them for all of their idolatry and carnality, centering them back on the gospel. He writes the second letter to encourage them because he's heard from Titus that they have responded to his correction, and for the most part, most people in the church are, are obeying Paul's admonition as an apostle of the Lord. And one of the problems in the Corinthian church was that there was this subset of leaders, or so-called leaders in the Corinthian church, that were critical of Paul's ministry because they didn't see sort of the frills and the, the exterior showiness that they thought should go along with somebody that was an apostle or called by God. And Paul was this humble, meek man who wasn't making much of himself. And his critics, these super apostles in air quotes, which were really false apostles, were criticizing Paul because of the lack of the the sort of evident showiness of his ministry, and he's writing to talk to them about, to upbraid them, to exhort them about his true apostolic ministry, his, his true calling, which was centered on the preaching of the cross and not some exterior temporary false fruit. And he has persuaded much of the church at this point. And in chapters 1 through 9 of 2 Corinthians, he's encouraging them for responding to his ministry, speaking to them kindly. And in chapter 10, he kind of takes a turn. In chapters 10 through 13, he's going to warn those that are still out there that are criticizing his ministry and saying to them that he's coming back to Corinth. And when he comes, if they are still criticizing and, and delegitimizing his ministry to the church, he's coming after them with the word. In other words, he's preparing for this spiritual battle that he's facing with his opponents. That's the context of 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13, and in particular, verses 1 through 6. That's what Paul is dealing with. And I think we can rightly use this text as a kind of picture, a kind of, 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 of explanation that we can apply to our spiritual battle, whatever we may be facing. So let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. I... Paul, may in myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, 
I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this passage that we find ourselves in this morning. Lord, your word is truth. Sanctify us by your truth. Father, I know that there are certainly people in this room who find themselves aware of an intense spiritual battle that they may be in, and there are others who may be unaware. The truth of the Scriptures is, is that all of your people on varying levels are engaged in spiritual conflict. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Help us to take this instruction, this, this brief few sentences that Paul gives us into how you've equipped us to fight this war and apply it to our lives so that we might live more faithfully and more passionately for Christ, our King, in our day. Lord, I pray for those that are in this room who do not yet know Jesus, that you might save them. Lord, to do this, my hope is not in the freeness of their will because their will's not free, it's enslaved. They need the freeness of your grace. Lord, they need you to do what only you can do and to give them a heart to believe and eyes to see so that they might trust and follow Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd give the gift of salvation liberally today that any that do not know you that are here. Thank you for Pastor Sidor and Lillian and their church. Encourage them and bless them. We think of our sister church in Uganda, Lord. Thank you for our partnership with them. Bless my time there this upcoming week. Lord, help us now understand your text. Make us more like Jesus. And do your work, I pray, in his name. Amen. To help us understand this text, I want to give us a, a bit of an outline. There's three things that I want us to think about as we work back through this passage, especially verses 3, 4, and 5. We're going to look at our battle our weapons, and our mission. Our battle, our weapons, and our mission. So let's look again at our text. The first two verses there, Paul, is, is, is basically saying that, look, I'm coming back to you. And in a way, he's kind of being sarcastic in the first couple of verses because one of the critiques of Paul by these false apostles was that, oh, Paul is so, he's so humble when he's, he's so meek in person but he's so bold when he writes to us. And Paul, in the first two verses, is sort of turning that, and he's, saying, he's kind of sarcastically saying, yeah, you're right, you're, you know, I'm, I'm so meek, but I'm, I'm being bold now as I'm, as I'm writing so that when I'm there with you, if you obey the word that I'm writing to you now, I won't have to be bold when I'm present with you. But make no mistake about it, Paul is saying, if you don't heed what I'm saying to you about the authority of my ministry and the truth of the gospel, I will be bold when I get there. And he says then in verse 3, let's look at our battle. Paul clearly defines what our, our battle is. He says in verse 3, 
For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So the first thing I want us to see there as we think about what our battle is, is it's just clear in this text that, that we are all, he speaks collectively in the plural, we are not waging war according to the flesh. He, he tells us there that we are in a war, we're just not waging war against flesh and blood. All Christians are in a spiritual war. And the Bible's full of this. Just a few verses. We could spend a lot of time just combing through the Bible, speaking about clear verses that talk about how we're engaged in the spiritual battle. Let me give you a couple in Paul's letters to this young pastor named Timothy. He says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now, I think he's talking to Timothy here about pastoral ministry in Ephesus, but I think clearly this applies to all Christians on some level, that living the Christian life, being somebody that is representing Christ in a fallen world, is to be waged in warfare. In his second letter to Timothy, he gives us this analogy of a soldier, and we have a room full of soldiers, but this is not just speaking about military servants is speaking about life spiritually. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So I think, I think clearly, again, we could spend much more time, but suffice it to say that all Christians are engaged in spiritual conflict, a battle, a war. And when you're at war, you're at war with an enemy. That's why you go to war. We have an enemy, the devil. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-10. through 10. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering or warfare are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So we have an enemy. But spiritual warfare, this fight of sanctification that we all experience, is not just something where we're dealing with a particular enemy. In fact, I think we have three fronts to this war. Three, in a sense, enemies that we're dealing with besides just the devil. And we read about that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Let me read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 to us. And Paul writes to the church, he says, You were dead in, the tres in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now there's lots we could say about that verse. We quote it often here to, to remind us of the natural state of man before salvation. We aren't just minimized. We aren't neutralized. We don't need help. We don't need pragmatic tips on, tips on how to live better. We need to be brought from death to life. That's what salvation is. We're dead, and we need to be brought to life. 
But what I want us to see in this text for our purposes of looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and our battle is that embedded in this text that Paul is explaining to the Ephesians, the state of mankind, he's giving us kind of three front ward there. There's three things that he says that we're all dealing with. The first thing that we're dealing with is our own sin, the passions of our flesh that are inside of us because of the fall. We were born into sin. Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, and now by nature we inherit the sin nature, this nature of fallenness from our first parents. And we, just like we look like our biological parents, we look spiritually like our first parents, Adam and Eve. And by the way, everybody in this room is descended from the same mom and dad, Adam and Eve. Every one of us. Every one of us. Now, your ancestors may have scattered around the earth, and the sun may have hit your skin at a different angle, and you may be a different shade, but we are all brothers and sisters coming from the same fountain of humanity, which is Adam and Eve, which means that all of us, whether we grow up in a good church in Columbus, Georgia, or whether we have never darkened the door of a Bible-believing church, all of us start off the same way, and that is dead in our sins. Dead in our sins. Which means we all, all of us, need the grace of the gospel. Something needs to happen to you. God, in his kindness, needs to, by his sovereign power, make you alive. I'm digressing right now. This is a rabbit trail, but I think it's well worth it. You, by nature, are not a good person. You're a fallen person like everybody else, and you must be born again. You must be born again. And that can only happen by God's grace. He takes dead people and he makes them alive by the power of the gospel. Somebody shares the gospel with you. Somebody preaches the gospel. And what is the gospel? It's the good news that God who is holy, whose wrath is bearing down on sinful man, sent his son Jesus, God the Son in the flesh, to live a perfect life where we have all rebelled against God, to then absorb and satisfy the wrath of God against human sin and satisfy it, remove it, and extend it and then rise again in victory over death, sin, and the grave, and now gives life to all whom the Father has given to him, and he causes by his Holy Spirit to hit your dead heart and make you alive. And he takes a dead person and he makes them alive. And when they're alive, the first gift that God gives a new heart is faith, where now you are able to believe in Jesus. That's what you need. That's where everybody starts. Back on the main point of the sermon is that this, this three-front war we see here, we're all dealing with the sin nature that we have, right? It says in the sins we once walked. And then he says that we're following the course of this world. There's this fallen world. There's this post-Genesis 3 world that has fallen. It's the collective combination of all these fallen people in this fallen world that is now exposed to sin and death and we're all kind of living in this muck and mire and we have to deal with each other right and that has an effect on us and then this third thing that we deal with is the prince of this world the power of the air which is satan who is given in a temporary sense a kind of authority over this world by god and so we're dealing with Sin on the inside, that's front number one. We're dealing with 
brokenness in the world, this kind of fallen world, and we're dealing with Satan. It's a three-front war. Sometimes you may hear it's, it's, it's sort of shortened in Christian language to the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In fact, the old catechisms of the Reformation talk about how we deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we do. Why I bring that up is that we, we need to recognize that spiritual warfare is not just all against Satan. There, there's warfare going on in here, and we cannot blame everything that we're going through in our sanctification, our spiritual fight, on the devil, right? Don't give him more credit than he deserves and exonerate yourself from responsibility. The, 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 the devil made me do it is not a legitimate excuse for all that's going on in our lives, right? We're dealing with the flesh, the world, and the devil. And it's a real battle. Listen to what Jesus says to Peter right before his crucifixion, right before Peter's denial of, of Jesus. He says in Luke chapter 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I give you that text just to give you a picture of how there's this battle in the heavenlies waging for the soul of Christians to where we have this picture where Satan, and I, 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 I'm actually... I love this because although it's a, the reality of the spiritual warfare that we're in, it's, it's, it's Satan going to God asking if he can touch Simon Peter. He's asked if he, can, his, if he can sift you like wheat. He's demanded. He's coming to God. We see, we see the same sort of picture in Job. Let me read to you Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. And I, and I offer this to give us just a clear scriptural picture of this battle in the heavenlies between God and our enemy. And he conspires with the world and our own sin. But notice that he has to, he's still, even though he's the prince of the power of the air, he is still under the authority of God. In fact, Jude, at the end of the Bible, right before Revelation, says that these demons, which are the minion of Satan, are on a leash. Listen to Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, and I love when God asks questions, like when God asked Adam in the, in the garden, Adam, where are you? As if God didn't know. You know, when God's asking you a question, he already knows the answer, right? From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, listen to this. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, this is not a message on God's relationship in providence over evil, but I just want you to make note of the fact that God brings up Job's name. I find that humbling and strangely encouraging in that no matter what you're going through, friends, God is sovereign over it. 
It's not like anything that you're dealing with snuck up on God and he wasn't aware of it. I think one of the reasons that scene is in the Bible is to impress on us the sovereignty over God in evil. Now, we need to be careful with that. God is not culpable for evil. He's never guilty for the, for the sin of this world. But he is in a providential way that we cannot fully piece together in this life. He is over it. He's sovereign over it. And he has purposes in all of it for the good of his people. And he is so sovereign, he's so powerful, he uses the plans of the enemy that are evil for us, and he turns it around for the good. He uses Satan and his minions as tools to chisel Christ's likeness in his people. That's, 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 more, that's more exciting than y'all made out. I'll just say that. Have you, verse 10 Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face, Satan says. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God puts Satan on a leash and tells him what he can and cannot do. And then we read about Jesus' explanation of Satan's mission here. A familiar verse, I'm sure, to many of us, John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come, Jesus says, that we might have life and have it abundantly. So what can we say at this point about verse 3? I just want to make this point about our battle I want us to understand about our battle that we are all, all of us, in a spiritual war against the world, our flesh, and the devil. All of us. You're in that war right now. I don't want you to be overly psyched out about it. I don't want this to scare or spook you. I want you to realize this is a regular part of the Christian life. This is a regular part of the biblical narrative. This is what all Christians are facing, all of God's people. From the garden until now, we are all in a spiritual battle. And we can remember and take rest in the fact that God has purposes on all of this and nothing is random. Which leads us to the next thing we need to consider, our weapons. Our weapons. Let's look at verse 4. Verse 4. Paul writes, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. This, this word strongholds, maybe in the version of the Bible that you're reading, it might say fortress. I think that's a, a good word, a good word picture. Strangely enough, this word that is translated strongholds or fortress is also, it can also mean prison. And what Paul is saying here is that we have, God has equipped us with weapons, not of the flesh, and they have divine power to destroy strongholds. So right away we know that our enemy, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but our enemy is not people, it's strongholds, it's fortresses that we'll talk about in a second. But what are our weapons? These weapons that, that God has given his people, and they're not weapons of the flesh. They're not things that we can engineer ourselves. They're not, they're, they're not, there's not, it's nothing tangible that we can put our fingers on, our hands on to say, oh, if we just do this, then we will be equipped for battle. It's, it's, it's spiritual weapons of warfare that have 
divine power. In other words, the power and authority of God for the purpose of destroying strongholds. So what are those, those heavenly weapons that he's, that he's given us? And I want us to think in three, three terms, three, three spheres of the weapons that he's given us. His word, his spirit, and his people. The first primary weapon that he has given his people is his word. So that we would know the gospel that I just shared with you. The gospel, the good news that God has reconciled the people to himself. We read about the gospel through his word. God has revealed himself generally in all creation. But that's a general revelation that won't save anybody. It will only condemn us. But he has specifically revealed in his word how a person can be made right. And this word of the gospel, this word of truth, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, is the power of God unto salvation. And so this weapon, first this word of God, this gospel comes and it makes dead sinners alive and it saves us. It opens up our eyes to realize that God is holy and that we are sinful and we need to trust in his son Jesus to be reconciled to him. And when we trust in him, we are forgiven. We're justified. We're justified. We're reconciled. We're sealed for the day of redemption. And we are adopted as children of God. And God doesn't lose any of his children. And so we read from the Bible, from the Word, from, from this Word, we read the Gospel and we find ourselves safe and secure no matter what we face in this earth. We find ourselves safe and secure as one of God's children. And He's given us this Word to, to and, and let me give you this, this thought, He's given us this Word to wield against the enemy and to yield to inwardly. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. We, we read it, Tyler read it earlier during our worship. Hebrews chapter 4, let me read it again, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, do you see, even in that text, we see how this word, which is the primary weapon of God that he gives his people, we use it to wield. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. We, we can use it to against, against these fortresses that we are called to destroy. But these fortresses aren't only out there, they're in here. And so I, I wield this word not against only the external, but against the internal things, that these fortresses that are in my own heart. Listen to 1 Thessalonians, another Beautiful text about this weapon of the word that God has given us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. This is a beautiful text. And we also thank God. This is Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so when we hear the Word of God, when we read the Word of God, when we, when we think about and meditate and memorize the Word of God, it, it's like a seed that implants in our heart and our mind, and it works on us regardless of whether or not we're aware of it. 
There's this beautiful parable in, the, in, in Mark chapter 4 that talks about how the kingdom of God, it's like as if a farmer would go out and he would sow seed, he'd water the ground, and then he'd go to sleep at night, and he wakes up in the morning, and he doesn't know how it grows. It just kind of grows. I think that's a picture of how the word works in the life of a Christian. We expose ourselves to it. We read it. We preach it. We read it. We pray it. We sing it. And it works in our hearts and minds. Friends, if you haven't noticed, this is why we try to saturate our services with the word of God. I hope you've noticed that. We want to read the word. We want to pray the word. We want to sing the word, and we want to preach the word. And I think that you should go to a church where the word of God is central. If this isn't the place for you, if you don't stick here, do not go to a church where everybody's trying to be cute, and they read one passage, and then they fly off into some pragmatic tips on how to have a better Tuesday. Don't do it. You don't need a TED Talk. You need somebody to open up God's word and explain it to you. And then you need to be around other Christians who you can read God's word with. And then you need to discipline yourself so that you too are taking in God's word yourself. Friends, come on, what do you need to do to do this? What do you need to do? Come on, this is, come on, we, we find ways, don't we? We find ways to do things that are important to us. And, and let's fight right now. I'm just praying. This is, this is not a message about Bible reading primarily, but this is a clear application of our spiritual battle and this clear application of this weapon that God has given us, divine power. It's the word of God. And if you're not exposing yourself regularly to God's word, man, I, I'm, I'm begging you, man. I'm begging you, sister. Fight, fight. Fight to make that central in your life. Do whatever you have to do. Do whatever you have to do to make the word of God, the intake of God's word, more regular in your life. I'm not saying this to be legalistic or a law or to heap condemnation on anybody, but I am saying that we can, we, we can fight to take in God's word. In fact, it's the only offensive weapon in the armor that God gives us. Let me read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. This is a longer text, but how can we talk about spiritual warfare without looking at this text and just reading it? So let me read this beautiful passage about what God does to equip his people. Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's saying exactly what he said to the Corinthians, isn't he? Just in longer form. Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. I think that's an allusion to the word of God. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, which you learn that you have through Christ's work, through the word of God. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, which you know because you are exposing yourself to the word of God. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith 
Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? Which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In other words, the word is the primary weapon by which we arm ourselves and take the helmet of salvation. And how did you find out about salvation? From the word of God that was open to you. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Friends, let me just pause here and let me just say, what, what is it? There's, a, there's this um, ministry called Ligonier. Uh, some of you know of R.C. Sproul. He was a very faithful uh, Bible teacher for decades. Love the guy. Great respect. I, I just... I've learned a lot from him. He passed away about a year or two ago. But he uh, had this ministry, started this ministry called Ligonier. It's an excellent resource and website, ligonier.org or .com. It's spelled funny. It comes from a city, and you're wondering what it means. It's not some strange Greek word. It's the name of a city in Pennsylvania where he's from, Ligonier. But Ligonier is, is well known in sort of our stream of the church for doing these annual or every few years surveys on the theological state of the American church. And it's depressing. I mean, it's, they just ask basic questions about, is Christ the only way to salvation, to, to the Father? And, and people that would confess themselves to be Christians, just, just many of them don't know the answer to that, or just clear doctrinal questions about what Christ has done, or, or the Trinity. Or and, and my point is, is that I think because we live in an idolatrous culture, and I think because churches in America are are infected with a kind of Babylonian spirit where we just want to be liked by the world, we have generations and churches and denominations that care more about being cool and relevant and slick and sexy than we do about preaching the Word of God, which has produced an army of nominal Christians who think that they're saved but probably aren't and know nothing about the true gospel in the Bible. I think the number one commodity of much of American Christianity is false assurance. And so I'm just pleading with you right now. I'm, I'm asking you, you cannot just get one hit on a Sunday as we open up the Bible. You have to fight. One of the fruits of a person who has truly been born again is you will hunger for the Word of God. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. If you have no hunger for the Word of God, you may not truly be a Christian. And I don't say that to, like, to, 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 actually I do say that to make you despair of yourself because I, I'm, I'm trying to get you to see how primary the Word of God is and should be in your life. And I can't come up with a cute little mnemonic device to help you. I'm, I'm pleading with you, do what you can to make the Word of God central. We know how to do this. We, we schedule our lives around things that are important to us. 
We schedule TV shows that we tape. We schedule lives around hunting season or football season. Some of you already know every weekend that you're going to be out of town because Auburn or Alabama or Georgia or whatever is going to be here or there. You know how to plan. Can you plan? Can you fight for it? And believe me, it's a fight. It's a fight. But if you have been made alive, you have in you divine power to fight, to wield the weapon that God has given you. And right now, I'm just, man, I... I'm not drawing up a specific play to you. This is just a halftime speech where I'm pleading with you. I'm trying to instill in you fire to fight for what God has given you. The word of God. What does it take, man? What does it take? Maybe there's a dad in here that just needs to repent of the fact that he, that he, that he is not making the word of God primary in his family. Maybe there's a young college kid in here who's just getting ripped to shreds by lust and carnality, and your Bible's on your nightstand, and you need to repent of that and to fight to make it central. Read, just start reading a gospel. Read a proverb every day. Get with other Christians. Make one day a week where you get together and read a chapter out of Paul's epistles, and you say, that, that will be better than what you're not doing now, and fight and fight and fight. Fight. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. The spirit helps us pray. That's another weapon of our warfare. The spirit helps us. Romans 8, 26, 27. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. This, <laughs> this is so good. Man. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Man, that is an encouraging verse. If you are a believer, that means you've been made alive. God's Spirit has been put in you. And when you are so confused about what you should pray, even in your weakness, the Spirit is interceding for you. And if we were to go on and read a little bit more in Romans chapter 8, we would see that not only is the Spirit interceding for us, but the Son is interceding for us. So you, if you're a Christian, are the subject of the Trinity's prayers to the Father. Uh, now, that, that'll make you shadow box. That'll make you, that'll make you want to fight. This past week we were in... Philadelphia, me and the guys, we went to a short little conference up there, and we drove by the little circle where, where, where Balboa, Rocky Balboa runs up the steps in Philadelphia. It was terrible traffic, and the guys were like, man, you want to jump out and go run up the steps? Like, no, just take a picture, but I'm telling you, I, that, that'll make you, that'll put, that'll put steel in your spine. God's given you the word, the sword of the spirit. He's given you his spirit, and finally, he's given you, if you're a Christian, his people. He's given us each other. This is not an individual fight. This is not Rambo in the woods somewhere where you're fighting by yourself. You're in a unit. You're in a battalion. You're in a brigade. You're in a division. You're in an army of God's people. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's what, that's what speech in the local church should be filled with. Admonishment for idle. In other words, get off your butt. Help somebody out. 
encouragement for people who are faint-hearted, helping of the weak, and patience for all of us. This is the type of, 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 of warfare sanctification speech that should be present in the life of the church as we fight together. Galatians 6, verses 1 through 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You infantrymen know, man, you can only carry the 60 or the radio for so long. Sometimes somebody else needs to carry it for you. And that's what Paul is saying, is we carry one another's burdens for one another. Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, we need, we need the word of God. We need the indwelling spirit of God and we need each other. We need each other. What can we say about our weapons? We can say this, that God has equipped us with his word his spirit, and his people. That's what you have, Christian. And that is that those things have divine power. Divine power. God's power for pulling down strongholds. Which gets us finally to our mission. What is our mission? We read in verse 4 that these weapons have divine power to pull down, to destroy fortresses or strongholds. And we see in verse 5, a continuation of that thought, he says in verse 5, and clearly outlines our mission as those engaged in spiritual warfare to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. So notice what he says. We're not going after people, not flesh and blood. We're not really even going after demons in a direct sense or the enemy. We're going after arguments. We are in a fight. In fact, our mission is to destroy fortresses, strongholds, arguments, and lofty opinions that raise themselves against the knowledge of God. These strongholds, these mindsets, these, these cultural forces, these these. these these assumptions of our day that, that erect a kind of edifice, a spiritual edifice against God that accuse us. And their fortresses on the outside of us and their fortresses on the inside of us. They're citadels of anti-God thought. And Paul is telling us that our fight is against all of these spiritual forces of wickedness, that along with our sin in this fallen world are erecting these strongholds, these citadels which oppose the authority of God in this world. So if that's what we're fighting against, I think we need to have a kind of discernment and ask God to help us identify what they are. Now, we could spend a lot of time, we could do a series of messages just on identifying, at least in our context, the common arguments and lofty opinions and fortresses that we are prone to in our culture. And I think every culture has different ones, similar ones, but different ones. But we, through prayer, through reading God's word that works on us and gives us discernment, we, we have to fight to, to identify them. Let me just give us a few, a few broad categories. I think, I think a fortress 
that we are particularly prone to in our culture is just sort of self-image, and it is fed by social media. And I think, I think particularly younger, I, no, actually all of us, all of us, we are so prone. We, we live in a kind of age of anxiety and low self-esteem, and we're just, we fear the opinion of men more than we fear the opinion of God. And it's like we're living in, it's like we're living in a screw tape letter. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote that book, Screw Tape Letters, and it's a kind of, it's a kind of picture of spiritual warfare, and there's this demon named Screwtape, and he has this nephew named Wormwood, and it's just a kind of allegory about spiritual warfare, and the book is a conversation between this uncle demon Screwtape and his nephew Wormwood, and he's, he's sort of on the other side of the spiritual battle talking about ways that he can discourage Christians. And it's like we're living in a screw tape letter in our culture now. And I think if, if, if we could rewrite screw tape letters for our day and age, one of them would be that the, the, the uncle screw tape would say to his minion nephew Wormwood, let's establish this, this social media network that can be used for great good to spread the gospel all over the world. But let's seep in through the back door and yet let's use it to cause people to create this false sense of identity and let's give them all of these filters where they can make their life look awesome and let's cause them to put this all out in front of people so that they have this great need to make their lives look what they aren't. And then that will produce a hollowness in them and then they will look at everybody else's life and they will be secretly jealous of their friends who seem to be better off than they are. Yeah, let's do this. Friends, that's a fortress. And we, we swim in that water daily, don't we? I think another fortress that we, that we deal with, particularly in our time, is, this, is just the polarization of politics. An example that's near and dear to my heart, because you, you guys know that I grew up, the, the earliest house that I remember growing up in on the Mexican border in California you could go out my door where I grew up and you could look down the street and you could actually see Mexico. And my hometown is right on the border. All my friends growing up were Mexican-Americans or from Mexico. And in fact, my sister-in-law was an illegal immigrant, came across when she was three years old. Her mother worked picking crops in the fields. I grew up with her. She went to high school with us as an illegal immigrant, married my brother, is now an, a citizen. But one of the frustrations I have, and I think it's a kind of spiritual fortress, it's a battle, is the polarization. The, the moment somebody says, well, I, I'm kind of concerned about national security, and so I think, I think we, need to, you know, we need to think about securing our border. Boom, all of a sudden, you're all of a sudden you hate you know, people from other countries, and you, you're, you're just this right-wing nut job. But the moment you say, you know, but we should be compassionate for people that find themselves, oh, you're just some liberal person who just wants all those people to come in to vote for a political party. I mean, there, there, it's like Christians can't speak the truth in love and have a nuanced position. It's like these cultural fortresses, these strongholds, demand all of your allegiance, and they demand it now. And what it does is it pits Christians against one another 
particularly along racial and economic lines, so that the strength that we should have together as the people of God is minimized. It's like the enemy is de-arming us and pitting us against each other. And that's a fortress. That's a stronghold. And we need to be aware of that. Another stronghold that I think we have, another kind of idol of our culture is, is just children and parenting, this kind of idol that we make of our kids. Friends, we could spend a lot of time thinking about what they are, but here's my point, is that we are not going after other people, other folks from different subsets. We are going after arguments, lofty opinions, fortresses that raise themselves against the lordship of Christ in every sphere. And our, our mission, as he says at the end of verse 5, is to take all of these thoughts captive to obey Christ. And here's the thing about these fortresses, friends. They're not all out here. They're in here as well. And so we need to wield and yield the Word of God to the Spirit of God, to the people of God, so that we take down, so that we dissemble these fortresses that exist outside of us and inside of us, and we bring all it underneath the Lordship of Christ. That doesn't mean that we will ever live in a perfect Christian society, but it means that as much as we can as the people of God, is we declare our allegiance to God in this spiritual warfare, and we bring all that is in our sphere, we fight together with humility and grace and compassion, exhorting one another to bring all of our thoughts, all of our mindsets, all of our arguments, all of our opinions, to subordinate them to the Lordship of Christ in every area. That's the battle of the Christian. That's what our battle is as a church. Not to be cute, not to come up with just better tips on how to live, but to engage in this spiritual warfare, to ourselves be reconciled to him, and then to fight to bring everything under our sphere, under the obedience of Christ. So what can we say about our mission? We can say that we are to tear down arguments against God, both internal and external bringing them under the lordship of Christ. Our battle is, is that we are all in this spiritual war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our weapons, God has equipped us with his word, his spirit, and his people. And our mission is to tear down these arguments against God, bringing them under the lordship of Christ. Friends, if you're a believer, you're in this spiritual battle. And if you're not a believer, there is a battle also waging for your soul. And you need to be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. And your only hope is that God would establish a prison rescue, break into the prison of your enslaved will and rescue you and open your eyes so that you can see Jesus and trust in him. That's my prayer for you if you're not a believer, that God would break into the prison of the fortress that you find yourself in and that he would lead captives out of captivity and make you his, give you a new life so that you can trust in Jesus and come alongside with his people, put his spirit in you, open your eyes to his word and give you 
weapons to fight alongside other believers. Friends, that's your only hope. And to do that, what you must do is you must turn from trusting in yourself. It's called repentance. You must turn away from sin. You must turn away from self-reliance. You must turn away from morality. You must turn away from self-righteousness. It's repentance. And you must put your hope, your trust, your faith in what Jesus has done on the cross to rescue you from your sin. Now, those are things that you must do, but God must give you the ability to do them. So don't look inside yourself for that right now. If you know that's you, don't look inside yourself. Look outside of yourself. Look up to God and say, God, rescue me, please. And if that's the prayer of your heart, I have some really good news news for you. If that's what you're feeling right now, I have some really good news for you. The fact that you even want that, I think, is evidence that God has given you what only he can give you, which is a desire, new life, faith, to turn from yourself and put your hope in him. So breathe, believe, go with that. Run with that desire. It's given by God. And turn from trusting in yourself and put your hope in Jesus. And the rest of us, let's, let's wake up. Let's fight. Let's gird up our loins, as the King James says. And let's take up our weapons. And let's link arms. And let's put our head on a swivel. And let's not shoot out of here. Let's linger. And let's look each other in the eye. And let's take each other to lunch. And let's get together through the week. And let's fight. And let's read God's word. And let's pray together. And let's take life seriously. Because we're in a war. But it's a war that God has promised we will win. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Equip us. Wake us up. Lord, put spiritual ammonia underneath our nostrils. All too often we are like punch-drunk fighters against the ropes. And this gathering may just be kind of like a standing eight count for somebody. Lord, pop that little capsule of ammonia underneath our spiritual nostrils and wake us up and cause believers in this church to be engaged, to be fortified, to put steel in their spine so that we can march, so that we, we have energy for the battle. A battle that you promised that we would win, but a battle that we're called to fight. For my friends in this room who do not know you, Lord, I'm not asking them to reach through the prison door of their own fortress and unlock themselves by some self-righteousness or decision. Lord, that's impossible. I'm, I'm pleading with you to break open that prison door, call them to life, and lead them out and into your people. And Lord, give them repentance and faith so that they can trust in Jesus. Do this all, I pray, Lord, for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, and for the salvation of all those that you've called to yourself. Do it, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.